Here comes the sun. Good morning. How are we doing? Tired? It's, you're literally one day in the camp. Come on. This is my guy. This is my guy. What's your name? Landon. Landon? Yeah. The Lord has brought you here for such a time as this to be my friend, front row. I expect to see you there every single message. Um, what's up, everybody? My name is Johnny Artavanis. I am so pumped to be with you guys this week. Hume is one of my favorite places in the world. I uh, moved up here a number of years ago. I worked here for five years. Some of my best friends I met while I was working here. I met my wife here in 2018. I hired her to do music at camp. And I was like, this, I don't know, this girl's kind of weird. And then uh, four weeks later, she was leaving to go down the hill. I stayed up here. I said, I'd like to get to know you. And uh, we dated long distance. I think after a month or so, I told her she was my girlfriend. I wasn't sure culturally you're supposed to ask None of that. I told her what it was. And then we were married within the year. We have a baby now named Lily Jean. She's the best. You guys will see her around. I mean, being a dad is awesome. So I am so pumped. I love having a baby girl. It's so fun. What else? I am the dean of student life at the Master's University. It's a Christian college in Southern California. I live in Santa Clarita. Uh, and I have some best friends from Idlewild. Yeah, come on. There we go. Um, what else? I have a, like a podcast resource ministry called Dial In, and I kind of, thanks. I go through the Bible on that and release episodes every week trying to explain the Bible and answer some of the most fundamental questions about the Bible. Uh, I wrote down anything else that's important about me. I eat eggs every day for lunch. I hate mayonnaise because I'm a Christian. And I think that's pretty much it. And I'm really torn on who to root for in the NBA Finals because I hate both of the teams in it. So, because I'm a Laker fan. Come on, Lakers? Okay. Uh, Well, because of my time here, I understand that each and every... Well, actually, one more thing. I've been been noticing something lately, uh, and I gotta gotta get this out because, you know, the last few years I've done a song to kind of make fun of things like the Uggs and stuff like that. If I was going to do a song this year, it would have been on everyone wearing one AirPod. Uh, I don't understand. Like, you're at camp. What are you listening to right now? You're walking by yourself. You're eating lunch. Why are you so important that you like, what is so important that you have to have one AirPod in? Where's Kingsley at? Kingsley. I asked Kingsley today in the bathroom. I said, dude, what's the deal here? And he said, they're either like kind of listening to something, or they just want other people to know that they have AirPods. Is it the second one? Be honest. Okay, well, when I was in high school, we didn't wear AirPods just to show other people we had AirPods. The equivalent of that was walking around with the Jamba Juice cup, just so people know that you went to Jamba Juice. So times have changed. Um, Times have changed. And I know, let me get rolling here. I know because of my time here, each of you come from a different place in your understanding and relationship with God. Some of you are outspokenly against God. Some of you have grown up in the church. Dad's a pastor. Dad's an elder. Some of you came here because of the games. Um, I want you to know I have so much care and compassion in my heart I'm s- for you. I'm so glad you're here. I am uh, thankful for the opportunity to open up the Bible with you this week. 
There is nothing in the world more joy-giving for me, and I am so happy to be here. Can I pray for us once more because I need God's help and you need God's help. God, we ask, Lord, that you would be with us this morning through the preaching of your word. Lord, we desperately need you, and we pray with the psalmist, open our eyes, O God, that we may behold the wonderful things within your word. God, many here don't know you, and so, Lord, I pray that you would open their hearts to be receptive to the truth that is within the word of God. For others of those that do know you, would you um, challenge them and strengthen them in their faith? And would you embolden all of us to live for Jesus Christ? We pray this in your name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. The number one selling book in the English language is a book called Pilgrim's Progress. You've likely heard of it. It was written in 1678 by a man named John Bunyan. And John Bunyan was in prison for his refusal to stop preaching the gospel. He never was locked in a cage. It was an iron cage left open, and he was allowed to leave whenever he wanted, as long as he agreed to never, ever, ever again preach the truth of Jesus Christ. And he wrote in his journal, I would sooner let the moss grow over my eyelids than compromise on what I know to be true. He had a wife, a family, a blind daughter at home, and he sacrificed much because of his commitment to the truth. And while in prison, he wrote this book, Pilgrim's Progress. This iconic book is the allegory uh, of the Christian life. And the main character in the book is a man named Christian who is traveling to the celestial city, which otherwise could be heaven for our understanding in one chapter he is traveling, Christian is, with his companion named Faithful, and they come to the city of Vanity. This city is old. It's well-established, and residing inside the city of Vanity is a fair, appropriately named Vanity Fair. At this fair, all the worldly goods are sold. You can buy lusts and lies, pornography, titles, popularity, houses, anything you want, souls and gold and precious stones, anything you want it, come to, van anything you want, come to Vanity Fair. Many shops sell anything and everything to promise that if you just buy our stuff, you will be satisfied and you will be fulfilled. At the fair, all types of temptations are present to lure Christian and faithful, seductive shows, casinos, gambling and girls are available to them. And not only that, but in this city and at this fair, there are many professing Christians who attend fashionable and relevant churches. They were synthetic Christians in this fair those who profess faith in God, but live like the rest of the people in the city of Vanity. In Vanity Fair, there are physicians, there are lawyers and politicians and businessmen, and the broad road that leads to destruction brings trade and traffic to the city. And the book says that the only way to miss an encounter with Vanity Fair is to take yourself out of this world because as long as you are in this world, you are constantly passing through Vanity Fair. The city is unavoidable. 
As Christian and faithful enter Vanity Fair, they create an, abnor- an enormous upheaval. People start to turn. Who are these guys? They stood out like a sore thumb. Their dress was different. They talked different. And, and, and everyone seems to notice that their interest and their desires were far different than everybody else in the city. They didn't want to buy what the fair was selling. And in a matter of moments, the city is in uproar. The town is rocked. That Christian and faithful, these two dudes, are uninterested in buying what the town is selling. A mob is formed, and the people aggressively come around them and demand their attention, saying, Do business with us! What will you buy? And they say, What we want this fair does not sell. And the town responds and says, what? We sell everything. Everything. What will you buy? Do business with us. Buy something. What will you buy? And Christian and Faithful's response, we will buy the truth. And when the people heard this, there was a hush and then a roar and a rage. People rose up in a storm and they took them and whipped them and beat them and put them in an iron cage and put them on trial and prosecuted them for professing such an outlandish desire. The truth, (laughs) idiots. False accusations were brought And then they were both condemned. Christian was badly beaten and then released. And in the story, Faithful was tortured and then burnt at the stake because of his commitment to buy what the fair did not sell. The truth. An interesting story from one of the most well-known books in human history. What will you buy? You can have anything. What I buy, what I want to buy in this fair doesn't sell. I want to buy the truth. This idea is so foreign to us in the context that we live in today, right? Although those taking the stand in the court of law swear an oath to speak the truth, the whole truth, and what? Nothing but the truth. We live in a context that doesn't actually believe truth exists. The only absolute is that there are no absolute truths. By the truth, come on, the world around you scoffs, spits, and scorns. There is no truth, well, at least not on the universal level, because the entire world has been oprified. Speak your truth. The subjectivity of the human mind makes knowledge of objective truth impossible. Mikey said this last night, and I want to explain what subjective and objective means. I'm going to be talking about this later on this evening as well, but you need to understand what subjectivity means. People that think truth is subjective believe this, that truth is determined by what's inside of you, your opinions, your feelings, and your tastes. So whatever you're feeling determines reality because everything, around, everything outside of you is the problem. And on the inside of you is the truth. 
That's subjectivity, okay? What is objective truth? Objectively, what we believe is that the truth, because we are messed up, is outside of us. So anytime anybody ever tells you to listen to your heart or follow your heart, what the Bible's going to say is your heart is the problem. Don't follow your heart. Truth is outside of you. Subjectivity, truth is on the inside. Objectivity is truth is fixed and it's outside of you. Truth is not determined by that though. In our world, objectivity is an illusion. Nothing is certain and the thoughtful person, I mean already there's some of you, I get it, I wanna let you know I love you so much but what I'm gonna say this week is so contradictory to the environment that you live in that you live in a world now where for someone to speak with too much conviction and too much certainty, they're inevitably arrogant and naive because everyone else is entitled to their truth. So you can't possibly talk with that much certainty that you think yours is the only truth. I mentioned this book with the counselors yesterday. In the book, The Closing of the American Mind. Well, how many of you guys are seniors? Let me see. Whoop, whoop. Congrats, come on. Okay, in the book, The Closing of the American Mind by Alan Bloom, he says that 90% of college freshmen come to college with the conviction that there is a relativity of truth. Truth is relative. There is no such thing as objective reality. So 90% of people attending college believe that what's true for me doesn't necessarily have to be true for you. You got your opinion, I got my opinion. Sup, sup, sup. Bum, bum, bum. Go Lakers. But instead of four years helping clarify this for people, what the study finds is that after four years of school, that idea is only reinforced. There is no truth, just opinions and preferences. But even though we live in a world that denies truth, we still live in a world, I want you to understand this, and I want you to be honest with yourself, we still live in a world that desperately desires truth. Writing for the Wall Street Journal, George Weigel, I, I just got real interested in the subject, obviously. George Weigel says, I now live in a world that has lost its story. If all of the world is a massive accident, then how do I go forward? Weigel says, on a quest to annihilate all truth, man now has no intentional origin, no noble destiny, and thus no path forward to take through history. Another journalist named Henry Allen wrote this. For the first time, not Christians, by the way. For the first time in my 72 years, I have no idea what's going on. The most important thing in our culture is not change, but the fact that reality itself is dwindling, fading like sun-struck wallpaper. He says, like most people, I thought the world was going to change with the occasional arrival of a new iPhone, but now reality itself is fading and doesn't even exist anymore. You have people that would rather live in a virtual reality than have an honest conversation about actual reality. We live in a generation of people who have been influenced into thinking that the only thing they should be thinking is that there is no rational thinking. We live in a world that tells you there is no absolute truth. But if there is no absolute truth, there is no absolute purpose. And if there is no absolute purpose, I guess I'm just supposed to find my purpose, whatever the heck that means. This is what the world tells you. I mean, everything came from nothing. 
you're an accident. You're a grown-up glob of cells, a germ. Morality is relative. Truth is relative. Everything is relative. Go live your own life and go find your own truth. The Russian chess grandmaster, Kasparov, says this recently. The point of modern propaganda, pause real quick. As you can probably tell by this, at this point, I'm not talking to you like a bunch of kids. I'm going to treat you like adults this week because that's how I view you. Anytime I use a big word that doesn't make sense, I will clarify it. But I'm going to talk to you because I know that you actually think about these things. So I'm going to talk to you like an adult. Okay? Russian chess grandmaster Kasparov. The point of modern propaganda is not to push an agenda. It is to exhaust your critical thinking in order to annihilate truth. But even in that, people still ask the fundamental questions. I think one time I told the story about the post-impressionistic painter Paul Gagone. On his most famous painting hanging in the Boston Museum of Art, he wrote three questions. He's best friends with Pablo Picasso, and he wrote, where do we come from, what are we, and where are we going? Because the questions that we're wrestling today with today are not new questions. Philosophers and skeptics have been trying to answer them for thousands of years. And you can be in any environment. And go, I mean, go read the memoirs of atheists at the end of their life, struggling to go. I've been battling this my entire life, and I still don't know why I'm here. Who made me? What is my purpose? It's not hard to realize that we live in a world of crisis, a crisis of truth. What is the truth? What is the truth about God? What is the truth about you and me? And what are the demands that truth has upon my life? This is not a new question. Sarah talked about last night. I thought she did an awesome job. The most timeless war that has been waged is a war against the truth. The first question asked in the Bible, you know what it was? It was an attack upon the truth. Up until that point, there were only answers. In Genesis, the first attack upon the truth was made, not explicitly, but suggestively and condescendingly. Did God really what? Say. This is the first strategy employed by Satan is to make you doubt that truth is clear, that it's understandable, that it's not ambiguous, and that truth is not demanding on your life. Now, let me just pause here for a second because I understand at this point, maybe some of you are wrestling, so I wanna find some common ground. Maybe you don't agree with me on what I'm saying, but can we all agree on one thing, especially after the last couple of years? Can we all agree on this? The world is broken. The world is absolutely broken. I want you to think about this for a second because you know this. I know absolutely zero people in here don't think this world is right. It's not frustrated and fractured. Divorce and conflict reign in a world where people become more and more alienated from each other. If I asked you how many of you came from divorced families, 
40% of you would raise your hands because the divorce rates are just as high in the church as they are in the world. Well, what the Bible is going to teach us this week is that the reason there's so much brokenness is because we have rejected the truth about God. And the reason there's so much alienation from each other is because we have been alienated from God because we have rejected the truth. What's the answer? Well, 2,000 years ago, truth was put on trial, and Sarah talked about this last night. And I want to read this for you once more. Okay, turn to John 18, and when you get there, give me a yip yip. Okay, John 18, and if you're new, this is the fourth book of the New Testament, and you can find the location of every book I'm going to mention in the table of contents. I understand everyone's not a sword drill captain, so we can uh, help each other out. John 18, verse 33 is where I'll start. Jesus is going to go through six trials. I'm going to mention this as we go throughout the week, that this is a real guy at a real point in history, and regardless of whether or not you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you cannot deny that he was a real man at a real point in history. And one of the things that scripture is going to do is show us the historicity of Jesus Christ. He's going to have six trials before he dies, three before uh, Jewish officials and three before Roman officials, because the way that the Jews were able to kill Jesus is because they made it seem like it was an attack upon, upon Roman power. And so Jesus is brought before Pilate, who's the Roman governor. And there's stories and history of the, about this is included in their own history John 18, 33. Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned G Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus is a Jewish man, so he always has learned to respond to a question with a question. Are you saying this on your own initiative? Or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world. Okay, pause. Jesus is about to tell us the reason. I want you to understand this. Jesus is about to tell us the reason why he came into this world. Obviously, it's included amongst other things, but he says, for this reason, I have come into the world. What's the answer? To testify to the what? Truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came to testify about the talk to me. The truth, the truth. This word for testify means that it's, a, it's literally a, a courtroom wor word where Jesus says, the reason I have came, I've come as, as to, is to make a, a case to persuade you about the reality of truth. Come on. The reality of truth. And then he says the truth. You know why? Because truth is always singular in the Bible. 
Jesus doesn't come and say, I've come to make a case about a truth. He says, the truth. And I want to show you something in the Bible. And this is where, oh, I want to tell you where I'm going the rest of the week, so on, on that, I don't like sneak attack you on Thursday. Jesus says he is the only truth. He says, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. In John 14, 6, Sarah said this, I am the truth, Jesus says. He says this over and over and over again because God identifies as the truth. In John 17, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the, watch this, only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus never declares to be a truth. He never declares to be a true God. He is always identifying himself as the truth and the only God. I'm going to talk about some other religions throughout the week because I want you to understand, not in a patronizing way, but I want to make this super clear. When anybody says, like, can't we all be unified? Truth is never, or unity is never at the expense of truth. It's always on the grounds of truth. So I, I have Muslim friends that I used to work with, worked in finance after school. And here's what Muslims believe about Jesus Christ. The, the Islamic faith. They believe he was a wise teacher and a great prophet, a miracle worker, but not God. They even say he was born of a virgin. He's one of their greatest prophets. But he's not God. People amongst the Hindu faith believe that Jesus was an enlightened man, a wise teacher, and one of, catch this, the 300 million plus gods. One of them. We went to Nepal a couple years ago as a team at Hume. And I was talking with some of these people. There's millions, hundreds of millions of gods. Buddhists believe that Jesus is a kind and holy man. He's a wise teacher. He's worthy of admiration, but not anything beyond Buddha himself. He's like an awesome guy, but he's not God. Almost every other religion says they have a tremendous amount of respect and admiration for the person of Jesus Christ. Although they don't believe him to be the only way to God or God himself. But I want to ask you this. How on earth can you possibly respect someone when you don't believe that the most fundamental claim they came to proclaim is a lie? How can you possibly admire a man if you reject the central message he preaches. Jesus is here to testify about the truth, about himself, about God, about creation, about you, every single person in here. We're gonna look at the book of John this week. God is here through his word to tell you about the world the way it really is. Turn back to John 1. And give me a yip-yip. Okay, John is writing his gospel. If I had to preach one book before I died, John, easy, no question. If you go, where should I start reading the Bible? John, no question, no hesitation for me. John is writing his book, and it's both evangelistic and apologetic. And it's the only gospel where he's going to tell you from the very, at the very end, what his purpose was in writing this book. John was a disciple. He was with Jesus. 
And he's going to tell you the purpose why he wrote John. He says in chapter 20, verse 31, these things I am writing to you so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ. And in believing, you may have life in his name. He says, I'm writing this. Look at me. Look at me. These things, balcony? Yep, yep. These things I'm writing to you, balcony. He's writing to the world so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. I want you to believe this. So I'm going to provide credible proofs, a lot of reason so that you can know and believe and place your faith, not in wishful thinking, but in Jesus who is God. And everything I'm going to say leading up to the end of this book is to, is to really aim at that one goal. It's evangelistic, but he's going to provide proofs. And so it's apologetic. John is different than the other three Gospels. The other three Gospels, if you've grown up in the church, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are known as the synoptic Gospels because they provide a synopsis of Jesus' life and ministry. They talk about where he was born, how he was raised, different parables. John doesn't talk about any of that. Two-thirds of the book of John focus on the last week of Jesus' life. And it doesn't talk about his human lineage. It's not going to talk about Mary as, as much as like being his mom or the, the town of Bethlehem. You don't really read John at Christmas because he's pushing towards one goal. It's also true about John, the, this writer, he was highly concerned about the truth. He's the last disciple to write his gospel. It's written years and years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he writes this gospel with those three in mind. And he mentions truth 45 times in his writing. He also is going to talk about love a lot. 80 times he's going to mention love. And 100 times he's going to use the word believe. Which I take to mean this. Listen to me. John loves you so much, he tells you the honest truth in order that you might believe in Jesus Christ, receive salvation, the forgiveness of your sins, and the promise of eternal life. Love never prevents people from telling the truth. It always propels them to tell the truth. You do not love people that you do not tell the truth to. He is tenderized by love and emboldened by truth. Tender as a lamb, bold as a lion. He wants you to believe that Jesus is God. And so do I. In the opening chapter, or this opening section over the next 10-ish minutes, I want to give you four foundational realities that you need to understand about Jesus Christ. Four foundational realities if you're a note taker. Number one, Jesus is eternal. Jesus is eternal. Chapter one, it says, in the beginning. Now, what does this sound remarkably reminiscent of? What other portion in scripture? Genesis 1, 1, which says what? Some of you are like, I don't know this verse, never heard it. Don't feel bad. In the beginning, in the beginning. Genesis, in the beginning, because they want to tell the story from the beginning. Matthew and Luke are going to talk about Jesus' human lineage. But John wants you to know something. Jesus was not born on Christmas Day. He has always existed. He is the pre-existent ruler and creator of the universe. In the beginning. When you ask someone and you get to know someone, I, I've met a number of you this week, you start with the questions, who are you? What's your name? Where are you from? It's what John's doing in his gospel. His name is the word, and we'll look at that in a moment. Where he's from? Well, he's the ruler of all creation. He doesn't have a birthday. 
because he is eternal. Last year, we saw, if you were here last year at camp, we talked about Moses in the burning bush. And when Moses asked God, who should I tell them sent me? How does God respond? Tell them my name is I am. Because I am, and this is going to get a little technical, but I need you to understand this. I am means to be. It's constantly, constant being. I am, when God says I am, it means I don't have a beginning. I will never have an end. I am always powerful. And the only way to describe me is by an ongoing verb. I am. And Jesus himself, eight times in this gospel, is going to say, I am I am, I am, I am. Because he wants you to understand something over and over again. He entered space and time. The infinite became finite. The omnipresent one took on form and body. But he has always existed because he is eternal. He is eternal. And then it says, was the word. In the beginning was the word. And how many of you in your Bibles have that word capitalized, right? Everyone should. In ancient philosophy, the Greeks were concerned about finding the power and meaning behind the universe. You know the question, like, any time I interact with someone who's an atheist, which is, I would say, on a frequent basis, on an airplane or an Uber or whatever it might be, or talking to people at... I was going to say P.F. Chang's because that's my spot. Um, I, and I ask them, if they're an atheist, I, I say, hey, well, what are you guilty about? And I've told you that before because why, if there's no God, why do you feel guilty? And then I say, have you ever wondered where you came from? And as much as people want to strongly go like, yeah, well, this happened, this happened, this happened, everyone really wants to know where they come from. And the Greeks really, really struggled with this. And so the term that they began to use to describe the power and the meaning and the purpose behind the universe was this abstract, impersonal force known as the logos. Logos. That was the term they began to use to describe, you know, where do we come from? What are we? What's our purpose? They would say, you need to study the logos. What is the logos? It's an impersonal, abstract force. You can't see it. You can't understand it. But the logos is the reason behind all things. And so John, because he knows Greek people are going to read it, he's going to say, yes, there is a purpose. There is a power behind the universe. But he's not impersonal. He's a person. And his name is Jesus Christ. He's not abstract. It's not a force. He's a man. In the beginning was the word. Now, Jesus is eternal. Secondly, I want to look with you that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. It says, and the word was with God and the word was God. Surely this will be one of the focuses throughout the remainder of the week. But if you miss this, you miss everything. Jesus is God. And every religion that does not declare Jesus to be God, God is a false religion. And I have so much care and compassion for people that don't know that. But I'm not, I don't want to make this muddy or unclear. Jesus is God. And the only way to God is by believing Jesus is God. Jesus did what only God can do. He created, he raised the dead, he overpowered darkness, he forgave sin, he gave sight to the blind, 
He is God, but I want to look with you at something because it'll come into play later on in the week. It says that he was, he was with God and was God. How can he be God and also be with God? Is he with himself? And this is important, that right at the beginning, the Bible here, John wants you to understand that God is one in three distinct persons. We're going to talk later on about the Holy Spirit and what that means. You guys sing songs, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does he do? Who is he? And the Bible wants you to understand that Jesus is with the Father, yet he's different than the Father, has a different function than the Father. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten what? Son. So there's a difference there. And John wants you to understand this. Jesus was God and he was with God because God is one in three distinct persons. Third, Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all things. All things, verse three, came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The answer to Paul Gagon's question, the, the artist, where are we going, what are we, where are we going, where do, where do we come from, is answered right here. Where do you come from? You come from God. You understand this? Because if you miss this, because you're growing up in an environment that tells you this is not important. We can just agree on the central principles, but let's just try to like not make an obstacle of talking about God as the creator. If you miss this, you miss understanding who you are. You have no concept of your identity if you miss that you are a created identity by God. You are not an accident. You are not here by chance. I love Psalm 139. You were formed and you were fashioned by God in your mother's womb. And even if your mom didn't want you, God did. God did. God is the creator of all things. And because he is the creator of all things, there's something you need to understand about Jesus. He is not part of creation. Someone who is the creator is not part of the creation because you can't actually have the power to originate anything. I want to explain something about what Mormons believe. What Mormons believe is that Jesus is the created spirit brother of Adam and Lucifer and that he is another created being. You can't go 15 words into John's gospel and not understand that Jesus is not created. He's the creator, not just in a biological sense. In verse four, it says, in him was life and the life was the light of men, meaning that Jesus is not only the one that says, atoms and mountains and seas, everything is mine, Colossians 1.16. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the creator of all things, whether the thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He creates everything but not just on a biological level. God is the author of life on a spiritual level. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, meaning that people only come to a genuine saving relationship with God because God is the author of life within the soul. Number four, Jesus was eternal. Jesus is, the, is eternal, is the creator Jesus is God, number two, we switch those. Number four, Jesus came as a man. Verse 14, this logos, this force, this person that created all things, 
You, you need to understand this and, and understand how awesome this is. He's not way up there. He hasn't just been distancing himself. He came and took on human flesh. And here's what the Bible is all about. The creator of the universe came down, became one of us, lived the life we never could, died the death, death we never could to offer us the life we could never earn. Jesus became flesh. It says the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. That word dwelt means tabernacle. The way that God made his presence known in the Old Testament was through a temple or a tabernacle. And now it says you, you don't have to go into some temple or some tabernacle to find God. He came down, he walked, he walked, he ate, he slept, he drank. He interacted, he hugged. Why would he do this? Can you imagine? Why would you do this? Well, the Bible tells us, and sadly, you know the verse so well, it just doesn't even mean anything to you anymore. Why would God, Jesus, the creator of all things, the king of the universe, come down? The answer is a verse you know so well and yet rarely think about. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. How does he do that? How can he save sinners? Look with me at verse 12, and then we'll be done in just a moment. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name. The way people become the children of God is by believing in Jesus as God. You can't have life unless you believe, and you can't believe anything until you know the truth. So how does Pilate respond to Jesus at the end of the book? He says, I've come here to testify about the truth, and Pilate responds and goes, what is the truth? The cheapest form of fraudulent intelligence in our day is cynicism. I'll tell you people that want to look smart. I know exactly how they do it. They respond to truth claims by skepticism and cynicism and mockery. The easiest way to look intelligent and lack it altogether is by ridiculing everything you hear under the banner skepticism. <laughs> Sounds stupid to me. And yet the world tells you that's intelligence. The spirit of Pilate is alive today in this chapel. It's alive in your college campuses, in many Christian university campuses. It's amazing that one of the things I did the last number of years is go debate people at Christian universities. No, God's not a woman. We don't pray, dear Heavenly Mother. I mean, I, I always thought I would contend for the truth with people that rejected it. Never the people that said, come to our university and we'll teach you about God. The spirit of Pilate reigns in our media. It teaches in many seminaries. It stands in many churches today. 
Pilate's scoffing question is one and the same with that which rings from our contemporary culture. What is truth? The irony of this question is that truth incarnate, incarnate means in the flesh, was standing right before him. What is truth? I'm the truth. I am. And I've come to testify about it so that in a world of lies and confusion and madness, you can have certainty. And while the world might think it's arrogant and naive, you can rest with peace at night because I am the truth. Most people live their entire lives without five minutes of sincere pursuit of what is true. And if I could plead with you, I would just say, man, can you do that this week? No phones. Don't let anybody else poo-poo what's going on here for you. Your soul's at stake. I don't think you understand that. John 8, unless you believe that I am he, you will perish. Jesus never minced words, and neither will I. Your soul is at stake here. Jesus says, come to me, believe in me, know my truth, and the truth will set you free. I love you guys. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I cannot... I'm not a, I can, this is hard to do, but Lord, I, I pray that we would all be driven to your word. I'm so thankful, Lord, that the Bible's not some, I think what was said last night in the opener was so true. I want to read it for you while your head is bowed. These were the lyrics that were sung in the opener that I thought was awesome. It says, true north overshadowed by wherever the heart leads, absolute truth fades away, one lock, many keys each determining reality like some sort of self-contained trinity. Lord, that's what our world believes, that there's one lock and many keys. But we know from personal experience that if we don't have the right key, it won't unlock the door. And so, Lord, there is one truth, and the truth sets us free. It tells us who you are, who we are, and it gives us our purpose, our origin, our destiny, our meaning. And, Lord, the truth is offensive, because it doesn't just blend in. It's distinguished from what the world believes. Lord, would you please do a great work in the lives of these students whom I care about deeply. We're thankful for the opportunity to be together. And we pray this in your name. And all God's people said, Amen. I love you guys. Amen.